I've never believed in that, given 120% or 110% saying I've, I've never, never co-signed to that at all because it's, um, it's a figure of speech that I find quite dangerous. Hi, and welcome to Everyday Leadership, where I talk to everyday people who are leading in extraordinary ways, making a difference, making an impact. We get to listen and learn from people as they share their stories about how they're navigating life, business, and family. Before we jump into this week's episode, I just want to let you know that if you have any questions about this episode or previous episodes, go to www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast. You scroll all the way to the bottom and you can send me a voicemail and ask me any questions, which I will answer on the next episode and also if you're enjoying the podcast please subscribe it makes a massive difference and leave a review as well that helps to grow the audience and spread it out to more people and you can also email me let me know how you're finding it things you like things you don't like i'm open for criticism i'm always looking for ways of improving and also share it with a friend who you know might enjoy the topic we're about to delve into now, for this week's episode, it's a masterclass in leading yourself first, then leading your people, then leading your culture. It's all around authentic leadership, which is, as you know, my style of leadership. My guest today is Tukumbo Ajasa Olua. He's who I've labeled a black unicorn because he's a CEO, one of the few black CEOs of a major organization. And we definitely get into that topic. Look out for his response. We go back, all the way back to when he was 14 and how a courageous decision he made around being true and authentic has helped to shape his life. We talk about the power of language and certain decisions that he's had to make in his organizations where he thought he might lose his job <laughs> over and has actually cost him a lot of money, millions and millions of pounds is cost him but it was worth it to stay true, to stay authentic, to stay real. We talk about handling COVID-19 after only being in a job for nine weeks. Can you imagine dealing with that? As well as working with young people from marginalized communities, which he's done for 20 plus years. And of course, what does leadership really mean to him? Let's jump into this episode. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with my brother, Takumbo. Jessa Lua, who is the um, chief exec of Career Ready, among so many other things that he does, which we're going to delve into. How are you doing, sir? I'm really good, brother. I'm really, really good. I was. It's been. Mental um, Chrono was having having jokes before we came on, but I was like, you know, looking through his his story and a lot of what he's accomplished over the last twenty plus years, I thought the only best way to really start his interviews to to go back to a 14 year old younger tux <laughs> who at that age made a very brave and courageous decision to not even change your name I guess it's use your Nigerian name of of Takumbo after reading um Malcolm X and I'm very very interested to learn how you went through that decision-making process because we know like last year with BLM a lot of people actually did the opposite and they changed their names back and they were trying to or they were reclaiming their heritage because they had 
initially changed them to Christian names because it made it a lot easier to navigate in the workplace or that kind of stuff. So you doing that at 14, I was like, wow, that is serious. I can only imagine the conversations, the laughter from the teachers, from your friends, all that kind of stuff. How how did you go through that thought process and why did you do that? Yeah, so, wow. Um, I'll, I'll give you the context first. So being um, born and bred East London, um, living in a Nigerian home, um, it was a reality where I found myself wearing a number of different masks according to where I was. Maybe not masks, maybe is not the appropriate term, but just different versions of myself according to where I was. So when I was at home, I was Tokumbo. When I was in the park, uh, I, I was Richard. When I was at school, um, you know, it was Richard Olua. Um, and it was just like trying to keep up with the different versions of myself was very stressful and a lot of hard work, right? So it had that, it was the beginning of that whole assimilation piece of not necessarily feeling 100% at home anywhere, right? So when I'd go back to, to Lagos, I was very much um, treated uh, and, and, it, and felt like a, a London boy in, in Africa. And when I'm here, I definitely felt like, you know, I was of, of African heritage navigating a very British experience. So it started actually earlier when I was in primary school and, and I changed primary schools halfway because we moved. And the first day when my mum announced my name in a classroom and the eruption of laughter, <laughs> I was just like, I don't need that. That's really stressful. That's really, really stressful. So I remember pleading, and it was quite deep when I think about it, because this was primary school. I remember coming home and pleading with my mum that one of my names was Rashid, but I, I, didn't, I wasn't brought up Muslim. Um, and I asked her, we, well, I was brought up Christian. I asked her if I could use a, a Christian name um, instead of Rashid. So I picked the most... English name I could find, which was Richard. And then my surname, I cut that down from Ajas Olua to just Olua. So it was Dicky Olua in school. <laughs> and my English teacher used to call me, Oi, Dicky Olua! <laughs> so it was that. And it was that whole notion of just, you know, again, just being able to assimilate and just kind of ride that wave. And that was my reality for a good couple of years. And then one summer, just before I started my GCSEs, I read Malcolm X autobiography um, and seeing the transition that he went through really inspired me. And it really said something about um, why am I wearing these different versions of myself? Who am I serving? And effectively, I just felt that I wanted to be authentic to myself. Mm. And I knew it was going to be tough because I went to a, a boys' school in Leighton um, and cussing was a currency. So I was literally setting myself up to be, you know, um, a victim of that. But I remember I spoke to my form tutor about it. And something that really stuck with me is wanting my real name on all of my certification when it came to my GCSEs. Um, and moving forward, I just wanted that, that authenticity. I, I, I never felt comfortable with Richard. 
it was more of a convenience rather than it made me feel whole. It actually made me feel um, like I, I was doing a lighter version of who I was. So yeah, as you, as you can imagine, it was, it was a lot. My form teacher even asked me, are you sure you want to do this? Knowing the terrain of, of the school and what, what that was like. But I'm really, I'm really glad I did it. And it was, it was clearly one of the key decisions of my life, actually, because from that point, I really made an effort to just understand who I am uh, and what I stand for. And although I don't speak Yoruba, um, you know, I understand bits and pieces, particularly when I'm getting abused. <laughs> but, um, Listen, that translates in any culture. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like my, it was the beginning of me articulating my own version of being African British. You know, it wasn't about me necessarily wanting to fit into any box. It was about creating my own box. And that was the beginning of that journey, I think, where I accepted that I didn't naturally fit in any other box. I had to create my own. And that gave me the confidence to do that. When I could, when I could survive that, I knew that it was the beginning of me really understanding who I am and celebrating who I am and never apologizing for who I am, regardless of who the audience was. So I think that's what, that's where it, it started. And, and then it's really funny you, you start here because one of my oldest friends brings it up 20, 30 years later. Wow. That he says, I don't think you appreciate how big that was what you did back yeah. then. And he's of Caribbean heritage, right? Um, and he was like, it was mind blowing what you did. I remember sitting next to you in form class and you saying, yeah, I'm going to start using my Nigerian name, Tokombo, in, in class. He was used to hearing that when he would come to my house. Because mm. he would be hearing my mom, Tokombo! <laughs> like, your friends have to leave now, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he was used to that. And, and he, just, he just, like, you know, reflecting that, that was such a brave thing to do. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was where, it, where it started. Yeah, it's, it's powerful to have that introspection and self-awareness at such a young age to be like, actually, I am reclaiming my authenticity and that starts with my name. I, I Everything you just said right now, I could so relate. I remember anytime the teacher said my name was Shokbag Belusi. So I'm first in the register as well. So anytime the teacher said my name, I was like, oh, my hand was just like this. Day in, day out. And anytime I was a, as a substitute teacher, I was even worse. I'm like, this guy is gonna assassinate my name and everyone would just erupt laughing but i had hey, to go through soapy what, what did they used to call you i had soap soapy one guy was like subpoena i was like where'd you forget those like the letters are known for in there like you're just making up random words it, it just like seriously it was it was just a scale it was completely there was a period of time i ain't gonna lie between i was like 12 12 to 13 my name was theo yeah, I I, I got that from Hus Huxtables. I was like, yes. just called, I was like, <laughs> I just called me Theo. <laughs> so, no, no. <laughs> oh, so trust me, to I like I had to understand that actually I had to reclaim who I was and my authenticity and start owning it. And when I did that, even though it wasn't easy, it led to such a different way of approaching life from a very young age. And I think 
everything you've talked about around actually speaks into even what you've gone on to do and everything you've gone to accomplish. Because like I said at the start, you are the CEO of um, a charity and there are not a lot of them, generally speaking, let alone in the third sector. And that's not your only CEO position. You've held senior positions like from Foyer Foundation, Bar Academy, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So you've done that throughout your years. But it all starts yeah. with that decision from being that young, being like, I'm owning my identity and owning who I am. I'm walking in that going forward. And I'm curious yeah. to see how has that informed you working with like young people from marginalized communities that you've done for the last 20 years and why young people? Yeah. So, um, I think, I think it was basically reflecting on my own journey and realizing what impacted my journey. So having older siblings that believed in me and inspired me to be greater than what I could physically see in my immediate surroundings had such a huge impact on me. I mean, my older sister is like my second mom. You know, there's 10 years between us, but she was able to be such a cheerleader in my corner. You know, when I was growing up, I remember going to school angry, angry because of the level of poverty that I was exposed to, angry because um, my reality at some points was stealing 50p, 50p's that were meant to be used for the electricity meter so I could have pocket money for the tuck shop in school. And, um, you know, it was that idea of my personal experience and having people that supported me to navigate through that challenging terrain of, of adolescence. I wanted, to, I wanted to pay that back. You know, I, I thought if, if, if there is, if I'm experiencing that as a young person, there are probably thousands, millions of young people across the UK, across the world that experience that, where then their narrative could be changed simply through their support network, right? Uh, and, and, and from there, one of my, again, my sister put me onto this, one of my favorite films ever, full stop, period, is trading places. Yes. Like I know it backwards, forwards, forwards, backwards. I, I know it, you know, but it, it's not only did I find it uh, hilarious as a film, it really spoke to me about the premise of talent and talent not having a particular postcode, right? <clears throat> so for me, it was like watching that religiously very early in my teens and then just thinking my personal experience, there must be others. So I've always had a a kind of mentality of wanting to support other people to realize their power and potential. I don't do that exclusively with young people. I I do it with adults as well, but generally I do it with young people who have experienced some kind of societal challenge because I, I want them to believe that they can be anything they want to be. I don't want them to just accept the, 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 the descriptions or the boxes that society puts them in and just writes them off. I, I, I really, I like the idea of that $1 bill um, kind of challenge of, if we were to do this, what could happen? Mm. You know? And that stuck with me. So I kind, of, I kind of take that mentality where I want to support as many young people as possible to realize their, their potential. And, and it feeds me. You know, in regards to what I define 
as success, what I define as legacy, what I define as achievement is it feeds me knowing I am giving something to someone else to help them on their journey. It also helps me on my journey because it reinforces to me that I, I have purpose. It reinforces to me that the creator has blessed me with certain qualities that I can, I can serve society with. You know, so for me, they are the key things. The idea of elders supporting young people, helping them to navigate society, reality. I think they are the key components as to why I live the way I do. So it very much comes from a lived experience point of view um, and wanting to support and help as many other people um, as I can. What have you found doing that work? working with younger people and giving them that exposure have you seen i'm sure you have a lot of examples of seeing people from marginalized backgrounds being given opportunity and going on to flourish and do amazing things yeah i mean there's there's one particular individual that immediately pops into my head and i met this i met this young man when i was um when i'd set up this social enterprise which was called catch 22 and it was a social enterprise that focused on injecting diverse talent into the media industry. This is about nearly 20 years ago now. And um, one of the young men that I met on there was quite a brash young guy, uh, really confident, but at the same time um, carried quite a few insecurities and was quite um, bruised by the journey he had been on where he was trying to penetrate the media industry. Anyway, uh, long story short, he came onto our program, thrived, really like soared. And it was a training program that provided paid internships at the end of it through a number of different major media owners in the UK. And he just went from one to the next, to the next, to the other, and just bossed it, totally bossed it. And this led to him securing a full-time job in the, in the media industry, working internationally in the media industry. And when I met this young man, he was couch surfing on his sister's sofa, you know, on the cusp of, of just writing off his ambitions to work in the media industry. Um, and I played a really small part in that, in his journey. He did the legwork, he did the graft, but being able to be in his corner, so to speak, and just give him that little bit of advice of keep the, elbow, the, keep the elbow tight, keep the chin tucked in and wait, be patient. The chance will come, be patient, be patient. Um, and he just, he just thrived. And seeing that for me is just, it's just so rewarding. You know, it, 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 re, it actually reflects humanity to me because what it's saying is, is we can inspire each other to be great. Mm -hmm as human beings, we can inspire each other to be better. We can inspire each other to tap into our potential. And I think naturally, um, that's not something that is, is, um, is forthcoming, particularly for young people from particular de demographics that, you know, have, have challenges around their socioeconomic reality. Um, then you add race into the factor as well. So, so yeah, I think seeing those kind of opportunities and the impact that my support has had on their lives is amazing. 
it's it's truly 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 amazing and there is no uh yeah when i think about my rewarding experience there's nothing that kind of tops that thinking then using that example what would you say would be the biggest barriers or challenges that you see a lot of young people face when it comes to I guess stepping outside of their communities and the lifestyle that they generally tend to see around them yeah I think there's two things that come to mind Shabert one is fear being arrested by fear so the idea of and when I say fear, I kind of I kind of make it a two-pronged component of fear. So it's the fear of the unknown, right? So generally, a lot of the young people have been programmed to focus on the fear of what could go wrong rather than what could go right if they try something new. And then there's the second component of that, of the insecurity of looking silly, trying something new. So th those two together are the biggest things I tackle whenever I work with young people. So I, 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 I encourage them to embrace being vulnerable, you know, and I share practical examples in my life where I still am at, at the age of 43, I still am putting myself in position where I'm vulnerable because I believe in the premise of lifelong learning. So if they can see me display my vulnerability as a leader, as a CEO, as an elder, as whatever, it inspires them that actually maybe it is okay to look a bit silly whilst I'm learning this, or maybe it's okay for me to think and focus on the glass being half full rather than reinforce what all of my friends around me are saying where they're looking at that glass as half empty and saying, bro, you sure you've got the minerals to do that? And those voices around you start, you know, manifesting and then you start creating a narrative that you think is true. So for me, I think it's, it's the fear that is one of the biggest factors that young people need to overcome. And I constantly inspire them to, um, you can't kill that voice. You can't kill fear, but you can control it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's them understanding the nuance between the two. You know, we all feel fear, right? We all feel levels of anxiety uh, and, and that's healthy. So I talk about the time when I started, um, I talk about the time when I had the idea of traveling around the world, you know, um, with a few friends after graduating. I talk about the time when I went in the boxing ring for the first and last time <laughs> <laughs> in front of 2000 people, many of them friends and family that I loved. The fear I had of fighting um, a ringer, someone that had replaced the person I was meant to fight. And I only found out after we fought that this person had fought seven times before, you know, um, wow. the fear I have of, uh, you know, um, my first day in university and in front of a auditorium of all the journalism students, the head of journalism literally destroying my name, right? And I came in through a foundation course. So I was already carrying certain insecurities. Um, and the fear I had of, can I make this? Can I, can, I, can I thrive? So constantly I have different examples within my life where I've had to embrace fear. I've had to embrace vulnerability. And, and I frame it as a positive thing for young people. 
I think society at large frame those things as negative traits. It's interesting you mentioned fair from that perspective. But when I look at a lot of organisations and the flip side of that, I see they also have a lot of fear. They have fear around changing what's working for them. They have fear around introducing people from those backgrounds into their organisation because they don't know how to relate to them. Therefore, we're just going to keep on doing what we do. We'll hire for culture fit rather than for culture ad. So even though it's two sides of the, of the same coin, they still have that fear, but just coming from completely different perspectives, don't they? Yeah, totally. I mean, like in my leadership journey, I've been uh, a leader now probably 15 years, right? When I set up my first organization. When it comes to talent recruitment, I've always looked for awesome talent. Like people who I believe are better than me. Like people that I, I, I could, could, could probably take, take over my role. That's who I look for, you know? Um, and for me, it's, I've, I've literally consciously, and that's because I've been on a journey of self-development from 14. I focused on developing myself and understanding who I am um, and being okay with that. A lot of times people are recruiting for people that are similar to them or people that don't intimidate them. Mm -hmm. Consciously or subconsciously. Whereas I have actively looked for people that could blow me out of the water. Because I, I believe in lifelong learning. So I want to surround myself with professionals that I can learn from. Regardless of I'm their line manager or not. I want to be surrounded by brilliance. Mm -hmm. And I want to be surrounded by people that can add to our organization. And I love disruption. I love change. You know, I embrace it. And I think that's, again, because of the upbringing I had where there was not constants. You had to be agile. You had to navigate a, a very difficult circumstance. You had to be creative, you know. Um, <laughs> you had to be creative, man. Like, this, it, it wasn't a choice. When you have a limitation of, okay, there's corned beef and there's rice, how many different ways can you make that work? As <laughs> <laughs> soon as you were talking here, yeah, that's the phrase that came to my head like this, rice at home. That was the statement that came into my head. <laughs> that's it. So how many different ways can you funkify that where you come home and there's a level of excitement about dinner? Because, you know, the, the reality was you didn't have much resource. So it, the idea of embracing creativity just naturally came. Um, as part of my DNA. So, yeah, you're right. I, I definitely see it a lot. And I see a lot of peers that are leaders that lead with so much insecurity and lead with so much ego. Um, we all have an ego, but I mean, like, for it to be at the forefront of your leadership style is uh, is troubling. Yeah, it's a problem. And, and disturbing. So I've always had a focus on... Um, Fulfillment, happiness, excellence, purpose, th those kind of traits is what I look for in people that I hire. Nice. So now speaking of leadership styles, what, how do you define leadership? How do I define leadership? Um, I think I define leadership as an individual that has accountability and responsibility for others. 
and inspires others to play their role. So whether that's within uh, a sporting event and you're a team captain, or whether you're a chief exec of a six-figure organization, I think it's about inspiring other people to be able to, to realize their potential and to execute the expectation that has been set. Yeah, I think fundamentally that's how I see leadership. Mm. Execute the expectation that has been set. Mm. So if you have a very high expectation of people, how do you drive them forward? Because there are times where you can see things in people which they don't see themselves. So how yeah. do you move them towards that goal, towards that level that you know that they can attain, even when they seem to lack that initial confidence at the start? Yeah, so I think to use a sporting analogy, it's like that idea of feeding the lactic acid, but at the same time, you want that client to come back to the next training session. So it's finding that balance between putting them on a program of development that is challenging, but not crucifying. Because what you don't want to do is tap into that fear component again, where they fear that pain, that lactic acid so much, they never want to experience it again. So it's about the incremental kind of milestones that you put in place where that person can identify evolution. That person can identify growth. They can look back and realize that's how far I've come on this journey. And then look at me as a leader and feel inspired as someone that has supported them along that journey. So my aspirations for that person may be off the, off the, off the scale. I don't necessarily need to sow that seed at every milestone of that journey. So for me, it's about breaking the aspirations for that individual into bite-sized chunks. And then we were able to reflect on that journey at those different checkpoints. But ultimately, when our time is done, it's about me being able to say to them, when you first came, this was where you're at. And now, you know, look what you've achieved. And I guarantee you, you didn't expect yourself to be able to achieve at least 50% of that because of that, that mindset that you had was potentially quite limited based on previous experiences. And I've had that feedback a lot in regards to my leadership style. It's very different to what people have experienced in the past. So they usually arrive working with me programmed in a way that I feel is very negative. Mm -hmm. So the initial engagement is actually taking that all apart. And the insecurities of that, you know, I have a lot of people thinking they need to have this presenteeism factor of, they need to be online before me. They need to be logged off after me. And it's like, that's not efficient. So let's not do that. Let's not do that. That, that, that currency has no value here. What I am focused on is the quality of the output. If that means you can do that in, in less time, then that's something to be celebrated. You know, so th there, is, there is a lot of kind of, there's a lot in that when it comes to the idea of how do I support someone to fulfill their potential? Some of it starts with uh, unlocking some of the programming that they inherited before we even met. Yeah. 
unlearning and then relearning. It's kind of that, mm. that process you have to you have to go through. And um, what you just said right now really, really resonated around, actually, it's not about lugging on before me. It's not about appearances. It's more about your output. And if you get your work done and you're doing it in a quicker time, that's brilliant. Like, well done for that. I'm not <laughs> going to penalise you for that. And I think that's, traditionally speaking, we've had, what well, I guess, what I call like a bums in seats kind of culture where you have to be seen to be doing something. You can be there for 15 hours and your output is like an hour's worth of work. But because you're seen to be doing something, that gets celebrated. And I think what especially this pandemic has revealed is actually it's about the output. It's like what is your work really producing that's really making a difference going forward? And um, speaking about pandemics, you, what, nine weeks into your new role? (laughs) 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 How did you like, what I was like, how did you feel? Because that's a lot of pressure on your shoulders normally it used to get into know people yeah. and build relationships now you have to deal with yeah. pandemic and remote working how did you feel yeah it was it was it was um it was uh it was mind-blowing to be totally honest with you because i had to make i had to make really tough decisions uh with limited information context and political understanding of the terrain. Um, one of the one of the biggest decisions that we had to make uh, very early is our organisation is focused on supporting young people on their career journey. As part of that, we provide paid internships for young people. Uh, and one of the first decisions I had to make a call on is cancelling a thousand paid internships wow. across the UK uh, last summer. And I was just like, God damn, you know, that's like over a million pounds worth of income for for young people. And um, yeah, I just had to be brave, Chopin. I just had to be brave. And it was, it, there was no, there was no wriggle room. There was no fence to sit on. You either had to go left or right. That was it. So I constantly had to tap into my experience of leadership. And where there was little wobbles of doubt, I had to trust my experience. I had to trust my wisdom. I had to trust my instinct. And there is no other experience that has enforced me to trust me more so than what I went through last year. You know, because it, it, I didn't, it wasn't a complete science. The data I would normally rely on was not there because everything was happening so quickly, you know? So we went from a position of where we were following the World Health Organization as a steer of what to do. And then we got to the point of where I couldn't trust that. And I just had to make decisions ahead of their, you know, insight. And we closed our office early before national lockdown. And we're based in Canary Wolf hosted by one of our partners. And um, that was just like mind blowing for everyone. It was like, we're looking down, that is it. So yeah, I think the the year really just reinforced to me that I've been in this game for a minute now, right? And um, if there was ever a time that it was 
to call on all of my experience, it was last year because there was a number of different things you had to deal with. There was, there was the whole emotional impact on staff, many of which I had never met <laughs> in person. And a lot of my style of leadership, that authenticity piece is about building authentic rapport with individuals, you know, over coffees, over little quirky interactions. And it's a lot harder to do that over a screen, right? Um, so yeah, building those kind of rapports were really hard, but at the same time, I could also witness the emotional impact that was having, uh, the pandemic was having on, on, on our staff team, you know? Um, so for me, I, something that comes to mind now is that I, I've never believed in that given 120% or 110% saying I've, I've never, never co-signed to that at all because it's, um, it's a figure of speech that I find quite dangerous mm. because we are not robots, right? And again, this comes back to that unlearning some of the, the, the kind of normalities that people had when they've worked with me. And I'm very much of the mentality, I would prefer you to give me a consistent 80 to 85% throughout the time of us working together than give me 100%, break down, need time to recover, and then repeat that cycle. Because the productivity outcome I'm getting of, I don't know, six months of 100% over a year is less than what I get if I got a consistent 80 to 85% each month. Yeah. So that's about, again, this reinforces my mentality of putting the person first. Yes, they're a professional, but they're a human being first. And if I tap into that, if I tap into their value system, if I tap into what they, um, what they see as their purpose, and I focus in on their definition of happiness, it's my job as a leader to make sure that I'm giving them the opportunity to reinforce that in their professional life. And I think that kind of healthy approach to being excellent is a lot more sustainable than this kind of, um, you know, micromanaging, how come you're not logged on yet? Where is this? I wanted it yesterday. And there is something about celebrating failure. And I know that sounds a bit odd, but what I mean is um, creating a culture where people are able to embrace the idea of getting it wrong. Yeah, psychological safety. And not, yeah, and not fearing that. Because I've met many professionals that are paralyzed by the fear of getting it wrong, that they never try anything new. Yeah. And in my life, innovation and creativity have been key traits to all of my wins. Mm -hmm. And within teams, the culture needs to be one that embraces innovation. So the idea of it's okay to, to get things wrong, the key is to learn from that mistake. The mistake can be expensive, but it could also be the breakthrough moment as well of us being able to do something on a next level that is efficient, that is sustainable, that can grow our income, you know? So, so yeah, I think there's some of the key traits when it comes to, when it comes to that leadership piece. So this is a leadership class in authenticity. Because everything <laughs> yeah. that you're just saying is like, yes, yes, I completely agree, subscribe through. That's how I, I practice normally anyway. And it's so, mm. it makes a massive difference to, to your people as well. 
Because by even doing that, describing what you went through during during COVID, you get to realize that you have to trust your instincts, but then rely on people as well and listen to people. It's not all of me. Yeah, it might be the figurehead in theory, but I can then tap into my people and rely on them and their knowledge and see how they're feeling. And therefore, it's an inclusive decision-making process. And by also yeah. being like, actually, we can try this and we might get it wrong, but at least we're trying it. And then, okay, we try that. It hasn't worked out. Okay, we move on. We try something differently. But people see that being modeled and being done on a consistent basis. And that's how you get yeah. that innovation and growth. Yeah, and you get a lot more from people. Mm. When they know they have the license to, to be their authentic self, you get a hell of a lot more. So you start getting people bringing stuff to work that sits outside the parameters of their, of their job description because they're plugged in culturally as well as, 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 as a professional, you know? So I, I've seen that within the first 12 months of working with some professionals that I've never met in real time. I've, I've never shared a physical space with them. And yet I'm seeing them being inspired to give a lot more than what they're contractedly expected to do, you know? And, and that for me makes me very proud about, um, Again, inspiring people to realize their power and potential. So you, um, your organization really made some decisions around using certain words like disadvantage, BAME, people of color, and um, I think there's another one which I don't remember right now. And I wanted to find out why did you make that decision around using those, those technologies and why is that language so important? Yeah, so in society, my opinion is we're really good at putting people in boxes. So, um, and generally those boxes are not empowering, right? So there is something around neat, not in education, employment, training, like who, who in their right mind wants to be identified as neat? You know, how is that helping me to not be neat <laughs> in any way, right? So, um, it's just these ideas. So, so there is something about the sentiment about the words we use. And we, we said to ourselves as an organization, as a charity, we said, we're here to support young people that reflect a, a, a social, social mobility profile to thrive when it comes to their careers, right? So we don't want to reinforce the idea of tagging people with negative connotations. So the idea of calling young people disadvantaged, although that may be factually true, there are so many other things as well. So why are we choosing that tag to describe their whole being when that is a circumstance they're in, that is a circumstance they inherited. It's not something that they created themselves. So for us, we wanted to unlock that notion of who they are as people. And we just wanted to focus on them as individuals. And we wanted to inspire stakeholders and, um, and uh, like-minded organizations to think differently. You know, it, the food chain works like this. If the funders use a certain term, then the employers use a certain term, and then the charities use that term. And you just have this vicious kind of triangle, right? So for us, we've, we've, we've checked a few funders and said, but why do you use that language? How is it helping you achieve your charitable aims as an organization? 
So we started with disadvantaged and we, we went on to other terms that we just kind of sense checked and said, is this fit for purpose? BAME is definitely not fit for purpose. Definitely not. That, you know, that, that for me is just a, a convenient, crude tag that um, others people, right? Just puts everyone that isn't white Anglo-Saxon background in a box and says, you lot stay there. Or, you know, the idea of describing yourself as an ethnic minority. Ludicrous. Again, so our whole premise is, if we're looking, if our charitable aim is to support people to realize what they can be, all of our language needs to be empowering or at least neutral, right? It doesn't need to reinforce negativity. It doesn't need to reinforce societal challenges. It doesn't need to reinforce um, ignorance of, of other people. So for us, we are very much made a, a position of a conscious decision to do that. And again, that requires bravery because you can have very awkward conversations with people that are paying you a lot of money. And it's like, do I hold my line here or do I just <laughs> take the check? <laughs> you know, taking the check is such an easy thing to do. Such an easy thing to do, Chopin. So it's, it's that point of where you're like, yeah, it comes back to my purpose. It comes back to that 14 year old that made that tough decision. Um, and, and it's a very live example because I, I recently got a rejection from a very significant funding uh, provider who wanted us to frame our program that fit one of those terms. And I said, we're not doing that, you know? And if I had did that, if I had done that, it would have unlocked a significant amount of funding, not for one year, for like five years, you know? Um, and, and as a matter of principle, we didn't do that. Wow. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but again, I'm just, I'm just on my own journey of truth. I'm on my own journey of purpose on my own journey of authenticity. And I think the trustees that hired me definitely learned who they hired when, um, when uh, George Floyd died. Because I sent, um, I sent one of those emails to my entire organization a week after, because I couldn't take it all in initially. It was too triggering for me. So I, I kind of, stayed away and then one evening found myself on cnn all night overindulged in the, in the information and in the morning i sent one of those emails where i was hovering over the press pressing and send for a good few minutes because it was very very honest it was titled the reality of racism in 2020 um and uh Again, it was one of the bravest things I've done in my life. Um, some people could have called it career suicide, yep. you know. Um, but I just felt that if I can't do that, how the hell can I expect any of the individuals that I'm supporting, whether it's mentoring or staff that I'm nurturing to be their authentic self if I can't, if I can't do that? I'm now at the top of the tree, right? If I can't do that as a leader, we're buggered. 
<laughs> so yeah, I did it, and I was I was really um, pleased about the response I got from my trustees, from my staff team. There was first responses were from Black and Asian members of my staff team that were saying thank you for sharing that. You sent something that I never would have had the courage to share. Mm -hmm. so thank you for doing that, you know. Um, and hopefully in years to come, they will find that courage. They will find that courage because they've seen an example of, of, of it in, in real time, in reality. And I think last year on that kind of Black Lives Matter sentiment, it just said enough is enough. I'm no longer leaving any percentage of myself at the door. Um, and I'm not here to give you the answers as to why society the way it is. Um, I'm just focused on changing it. And that's, I think that's, that's where we need to be. That's mm. really where we need to go. What do we need to do to just change things and move things forward? And I think, I would say leaders, it starts, leaders set the tone. That's something I say time and time again. And so many times when we see people at the top modeling certain behaviors, it leaves an imprint and a mark on us, which plant seeds which might not be, harvest season might not be now, but three, four, five years down the line in different organizations, like you said, those people who saw you do that, they'd be like, actually, he sent that email out and he risked his job. He risked <laughs> losing out in the middle of a pandemic, but he had to stay true to who he was and set the tone and organization for us, the employees, for the trustees, so everyone really knew that what, here's what we stand for. And that is so powerful. And so many times, it's so easy for us to just compromise on um, on money and those kind of things. As you were talking around your your finger hovering, I was just laughing because like I've had so many conversations with my wife where I'm like, babe, I might get fired tomorrow because I just said something. <laughs> and she's like, all right, like we're talking, but we'll, we'll figure it out because. There are so many instances that we go through where it's like, do I say something or do I walk away from this? Yeah. And if I say something, I'm risking all of this. But if I don't, why am I going to think of myself? And that conversation yeah. happens far too many times than it needs to. And those conversations need to stop because we should just be able to just be and live and thrive without having to worry about the repercussions, which... A lot of the races, especially from white backgrounds, do not have to worry about. Yeah, no, totally. There, there is a consideration that is is part of your fabric, just the way society has been. I, I've noticed that from when I was in primary school. You know, there were considerations I was making to accommodate other individuals in my life, right? And that that you're right. We're we're at a point now where those of us that have the agency and the power need to need to speak our truth. And, and that could be whether it's to do with race or that could be to do with resigning from a job where, you know, is, is totally not right, uh, which I did. You know, I walked away from my previous CEO position because it was detrimental to my health, right? I, I was in a circumstance that, you know, wasn't viable. Um, I, I had inherited a, a reality that was just 
mind blowing. And, you know, I was this, you know, young, first time CEO, full of beans, thinking I could turn around the Titanic and, you know, burning out due to that, due to that effort and that endeavor where I felt I had to prove I had to be this, had to be that. But I am so glad that I had gone on that self-development journey, that authenticity, the purpose piece, that I was brave enough to actually say, this is not working for me and I'm going to resign. And I had nothing set up, Chopper. This is, about again, reinforcing that premise of embracing fear. I had nothing set up. <laughs> I, I jumped and I had faith. Yeah. I had faith, you know, and I had faith in myself. I had faith in the creator and I explored the fear of what's the worst thing that could happen. You know, um, having a family, having a young family. In fact, I just had my second child months before making that decision. Um, and it was that whole notion of embracing fear and putting my well-being first and understanding that, you know, this is not a healthy position to be in, right? And 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 I and I went through it, and it, it too did pass, you know. So yeah, I think that that was a really important thing, important reminder of about how courage and bravery can present itself in many different guises. Mm, so true. Um, I want to ask you around your position. You are a black CEO which is like a black unicorn, like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really exist in the UK. So, how, how would you, in fact, what would you say is currently the problem right now with having more people like yourselves in senior leadership positions based on where you are and what you're saying? When you say the problem, as in why isn't there yeah. more? Oh, oh okay. Um... <clears throat> <laughs> the reality is we have a deep rooted racism wiring problem in society and we package it as unconscious bias we package it as ignorance we package it as all of these kind of polite factors but the reality is it's uncomfortable it's an uncomfortable and inconvenient truth that there are many talented exceptional professionals that are capable of being CEOs that have been marginalized because of the color of their skin. That is the fact, you know, um, and there's a plethora of data to back that up. What we need is more people that are courageous enough to think differently, to unplug from that wiring and um, benefit from the abundance of talent that they've either marginalized or ignored for many years you know and even even as a leader my journey hasn't been easy right in a sense of and this is a very common narrative as well for those of us that do get into this position uh, as black ceos your first gig is usually a car crash you're usually given a car crash to see how you get on right um and from for the the few 
peers I have that are black CEOs, that narrative is really, really common to the point of where it's much more than a coincidence, right? So again, you've given this kind of test uh, to see how you navigate that. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately there is no, shocker, there's no beating around the bush. We live, we live in a society that, that has a, 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 a racist undertone built into the fabric. And until we can have an adult conversation about that, um, we can, you can commission as many reports as you want. The answer will be the same. So, you know, I, that's what it boils down to. I think you need more courageous individuals that have the agency and the power and the influence to think differently, to act differently. That's what it ultimately boils down to. Um, and the other way in which that's relying on others to do something, but where you're relying on your agency is having the courage to be enterprising and start your own thing. You know, sometimes it's not about waiting for them to let you in to the establishment. It's sometimes it's about building your own thing, which is what I had to do. When I first became a business owner as a leader, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no aspirations for that to happen. It was just an organic um, development in my career journey. I thought I'd still be in a media industry, maybe an editor of a magazine or something. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm heading up this social enterprise and learning on the job. But I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for those Catch-22 years. I would not be talking to you now as a black CEO if I didn't do those, if I didn't earn those stripes during that tenure. You know, so there are many ways to skin a cat. But to answer your, your question quite bluntly and quite honestly, we, 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 have a, we have a racism factor within society, within the fabric. And until that changes, we're just, we're just going to see more reports. <laughs> I'm so, so tired of... I, I completely agree with you. I, literally, two days ago, I was writing an article that says the reason why change is not happening is because you're racist. And it literally was just like, I'm sick and tired of reports. The data is there. You know the data from the government. You know the data from Mackenzie, whoever, around. It's just there for you to see. So you know you know that already. So what exactly is your excuse? Apart from the fact that you don't want to. You don't want that power shift or that power dynamic. And you're scared of what might happen. But then the flip side yeah. of that is when I think forward to the future, actually, with the change in demographics coming up, with the younger generation coming up, for them, inclusion is standard. That's how they've grown up. That's their society. So the organizations who actually don't get on board now and start to change and shift, they're, they're going to end up like Kodak or like Blockbuster and it's going to go extinct yeah. because no one's going to care. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I'm totally amped and excited about my children's future. Like, I, 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 like it makes me giddy when I think about it because what the agency that they've inherited and what I imagine they will feel is so different to what I felt growing up. What I felt growing up was a mother that worked three jobs just to make ends meet. And it was that notion of be educated, 
and do your best mm. and society will, will treat you right if you're educated. That was the narrative I had. Um, whereas the narrative that I'm sharing with my children who are five and two this month is a premise of being boundless, you know, not being shackled at all. Just explore, you know, and find your journey and just be boundless. Find your happiness in being boundless, you know, and that just as a template, as a foundation, who knows what they're going to become? I don't know. I, have to, I don't have the foggiest. But what I do know is the foundation they have is just one that is awesome. And I'm just so excited about what their narratives become. I love that. You know? I love that foundation for, for the kids coming up. And actually, mm. thinking about um, home, obviously, you're, you're married. Um, your wife's a former Olympian, now a broadcaster, author. You talked about being um, boxing, cycling, some of the different things you're into. So I'm just like curious, who's, who's the most competitive out of both of you? there's no doubt about that no doubt about that i think i'm more competitive with myself than anyone else whereas jeanette will race you up the stairs (laughs) (laughs) that's how competitive my wife is you know she's she's extremely competitive and and driven like that was one of the traits that i found um most attractive about her is that her drive just, it's just phenomenal. Like, um, the transition of being, you know, um, an Olympian, uh, to someone starting their, their second career, you know, and her, her athletics career was, was something that was cut short because of injury, you know, um, London 2012, uh, she was due to take part in mm. number one, wasn't it? Um, number one, still in Britain, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, she had gone to the the, the Beijing Olympics in in '08. Um, we met in '09, uh, 2010. And instead of being at the Olympics in in summer as an athlete, she had a double Achilles operation. Wow. And I remember carrying her upstairs to our flat at the time, you know, so the reality of what that was to what the dream was, we both were brought up in East London. So it's like, you can't ask for a more romantic Olympic games than being on the track in East London where you were born and bred, but it wasn't meant to be. Um, And she kind of took stock of that and and used that drive and then created a fantastic uh, career for herself in, in the media industry. Um, as a broadcaster and um, you know she's amazing like she 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 has that capability of being someone that is so compassionate but at the same time so focused Um, so yeah to answer your question she definitely is more competitive without a doubt I just focus on trying to be as healthy as I can be and challenge myself where she wants to beat everyone. <laughs> <laughs> One day, we, we were, um, her younger sister was here, and uh, they were jesting and bantering. Next thing I know, we're outside the house, 
and they're having a 60 meter race. Down <laughs> Wait, who won? Oh, the little sister what? blew out the water. The little sister blew out the water. That's what happens when you do. You, <laughs> that's what happens. But no, she's, uh, yeah, she's she's definitely the more competitive, and I see and I see it in our kids as well. Mm, but know, to say like, that the must that must have come through that DNA surely between both of you. Oh man, yeah, my son does not like losing at all, at all. You know, but um, yeah, I mean that, that whole parenting journey as well is is just really interesting because we're learning on the job. You know, um, for me personally, I didn't I didn't grow up with my dad, so the idea of fatherhood is something that came for me from fictional characters, whether it was Desmond's or Uncle Phil or Dr. Huxtable, you know, it was, it was all fictional. So I've kind of had to unlearn some of the expectations that I put on myself of what fatherhood was growing up to the reality, um, which is about that balance of giving your best, but also being kind to yourself and, and not, beating up yourself for not being the next Uncle Phil or whatever. Yeah, well, I think one thing that I also want to speak into is even though your kids are what, two and five, but you've mm. been like a father figure to a lot of other kids through programs like The Origin that started, what, 20 years ago? Mm. And mm. a lot of stuff you've talked about even now with a lot of work that you've done, it's been around... One, you worked, did that work in yourself, and then you now realize, okay, then what can I do for other people? And then you start to build it up. And flowing that into how you said you're building up your kids, which is just be you, do you in the best possible way. And I'll create that space for you, but I'm not going to put any expectations of you apart from just be boundless and explore. That's a beautiful space and beautiful way just to be able to bring up, bring up children, isn't it? Mm. I mean, origin, origin has been such a core part of me um for for nearly half of my life as you said and the beautiful thing about origin is <clears throat> it shows young men how older black men are such a spectrum because there's about 15 of us uh, that kind of act as facilitators and, and mentors and we're all so different, you know, and I think being able to have that exposure to such a spectrum of black men that all bring their brilliance in different ways is, is so reassuring, so reassuring. And it, and it totally rejects all of the notions of black men that are popular in mainstream media, you know. So for us, it's not just about supporting those young boys, but it's about supporting families. You know, so you start feeling part of a community again. Um, and that is something that is so organic because uh, we've just done it as volunteers. We've done it for the love, you know. We've not done it because we're, we want to build a brand or, you know, we want to be known as these super black men. It's not that. It's just, it's just about being present. And it's just about realizing what community means, you know. Um, and yeah, it's it's a very beautiful thing because now many of those young men have gone on to be fathers, have gone on to be professionals, um, and and I'm in touch with many of them till this day. And the pride I feel 
you know, is just going to their weddings and stuff. It's just like, oh, this is mad. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I, 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 I have lived a life that um, I am really proud about. And I've lived a way that I feel I've been living my purpose. You know, and if, if, you know, if my time was to come sooner rather than later, I have no regrets. I shop here with, with total honesty. I have everything I've ever wanted in my life. And I'm so, I feel so grateful for that. I feel, I feel truly, the creator has truly blessed me. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm just in a good place when I reflect on that. That is the perfect place just to end this because <laughs> <laughs> that's a level of gratitude and a level of realization that I think it's so powerful, especially when people talk around success and legacy. Being like, actually, you know what? When I look back over my life, I'm happy with everything I've done because I've spent it all, I've given it all, and I'm still giving it. And that's such a great place to be able to flow from. I also just want to just talk around um, with all the different things that talk to talk about he does, being a CEO, being a father, being a husband. Um, within the Origins program, there's a lot of stuff he does outside that's not seen, that is not mentioned around um, mentorship. Um, there's a bike ride that initially went out work from you guys from the UK to Paris number of years ago, but then last year it opened up and there was ridiculous amount of people that came in and got involved in so many different things that you've been a massive inspiration to a lot of people in general, a lot of young black men in general, especially, and you keep on doing that authentically, which makes it even more special. So I just want to say thank you for shining that light so many times and so often it's like that person's in the news for the wrong reasons or the media so quick to shine the light on the negative side and they're never on the positive so let's give people their flowers while they're here and be like actually thank you very much for everything that you're doing oh, bless shopping thank you brother thank you it feels it feels good doing it so it's it's, it's a blessing and, and 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 thanks for the opportunity to, to rap like this it's been, been gross, it's been real. Like, there's, there's so many things we can look at into, but like, nah, let's, let's, let's bring it all in. Let's bring it all in. Now, I appreciate your time. Um, this is Everyday Leadership. Catch you soon. Love, bro. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes. Or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time in Everyday Leadership.